Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, really good to see you on this 4th of July weekend. How many of you are going to see fireworks? Okay, some of you. The rest of you, you've seen them. You've done that before. No big deal. Uh, before we jump into our new series in the book of Ruth, I just want to run through some announcements. When you walked in, hopefully you get one of our uh, handouts. Uh, inside of that are a bunch of announcements, a couple of which I'm going to highlight, but also as a connection card. Uh, so if you're a first-time guest, our church family fills that card out every week. We just tend to write it on the top line, and then we use the back for prayer requests or sign up for various things like food pantry. But if you're a first-time guest and are willing to fill out the entire front of that card, we will donate $5 to Compassion International on your behalf. Compassion is an organization that uh, seeks to change children's lives, to bring them out of poverty, and they do it in Jesus' name. They work through local churches all around the world where kids can receive an education, they can receive some food, a bit of clothing, but most importantly, they get to hear about the, this gospel that we believe changes lives. And we just think that if enough kids realize the truth of the gospel, it'll change not only their lives, but it'll end up changing their families. And we change enough families, we change communities, and we change enough communities, we change the world. So if you would like to help us in, in uh, making a donation, we will send that $5 off uh, sometime this quarter. Just fill out that card and drop it in our giving box on your way out. Uh, so a couple of things that I want to uh, highlight today inside of those announcements. Next slide for me, Alex. <clears throat> All right, we are serving at the food pantry, so if you want to sign up, just use that link that is on your screen or that you find there in your uh, handout. Uh, we're serving there uh, next Tuesday. Not this coming Tuesday, but the following. Next one. Uh, this Thursday, uh, our very own Jake Epley and Anna Post, Anna Post, sorry, are uh, playing. Uh, their band, Redeeming Rebels, gets to open up for the municipal band, and so we'd love for you to just go and support them. And uh, here, they're, you guys are doing what, like six songs, I think? Is that right? Yeah. All right. So it's not just like a two, three song intro. Like they're, they actually get to play a full half hour and they're really good. So go and support Redeeming Rebels. Uh, next slide. Uh, then uh, Jake and uh, several others uh, from around the uh, uh, Waverly area are part of the Waverly uh, Worship Band. They get to kick off Revibe. It's an annual Christian festival uh, held to kick off the Bremer County Fair. Uh, so it's completely free. Just bring a lawn chair. There'll be some food vendors there. And uh, you can hear uh, not only Jake and the Waverly Worship Team uh, lead us in worship, but then a couple of others. Who, who are the acts this year? Like, Kate Nicole, Todd Tilgum. He like won The Voice or something like a couple years ago. Uh, so anyway, he won it during the pandemic, uh, uh, 2020. So does it count? Uh, I think it does. He sings way better than me. I, I can guarantee you that. All right. But anyway, you'll want to mark Revive for your uh, calendar. And then last one. That was it. Okay. Then, uh, last thing, yesterday, many of you got the email. Uh, for those of you who aren't on our email list, uh, your first-time guest, or maybe uh, just didn't check your email, because I rarely check mine on Saturday. Um, yes, we have a toilet issue. Uh, we have known of this. Uh, we've had three weeks now of our toilets not flushing correctly. It started with just this one right here. Uh, plumber came out, thought we cleared it. They claimed it was a squirrel. Uh, so that got cleared. And then the following week, all three toilets wouldn't flush by the end of our time together here on Sunday morning. Morning. So a plumber came back out, claimed it was just a big wad of toilet paper. We also apparently have found some brown paper towels in there. So moms and dads, I think some of your children are flushing the brown paper towels down the toilet, which is complicating the issue. So we thought that was cleared. And then last Sunday, it was just right back to where it was uh, by the end of our time together. So uh, we called a different plumber. 
And uh, he used his camera, and uh, Manette was with him, and sh- they discovered that a, for the clean-out uh, drain, there was a cap that must have busted or was ill-fitting, had fallen inside, and had been flushed down. So he was able to see that, and so he used his jet propulsion system, and he cleared it, almost. He pushed it three times farther, but it got trapped, and it is currently sitting under our parking lot. And he said that we can flush liquids, but anything else is going to get caught on that, and we're just going to have the problems continue. So this Thursday, they're supposed to come dig a hole in our parking lot, take out that section of pipe, replace that. So hopefully next Sunday, we can all use the bathrooms like normal. So I apologize if you have an emergency today, if your coffee suddenly kicks in, and if it means you have to leave the building, I will not be offended. I will understand, all right? And moms and dads, I apologize to you, because you can't always predict when you're children need to go. But we decided because it was hopefully only going to be one Sunday not to do the porta potty system. Uh, we will just uh, make do this week. If for some reason there are complications next week and you see a porta potty outside, you'll know why. All right, with that, let's jump into Ruth. Um, all right, so I was going to open up with this beautiful illustration about my dog. This is my dog, Kaya. She's now been a part of our family for about two years. She's absolutely adorable, and she's wonderful. And I was going to open with a story of how she loves to greet me at the door. However, I was here at the building yesterday, gone for a couple hours, and when I got home for supper, she proceeded to just lay on the couch, kind of wagged her tail at me, but it was like, yeah, I'm not greeting you. And I'm like, way to go, Kaya. You just ruined my opening illustration. So we'll move to the second part of my illustration. How many of you are parents? How many of you have had that moment where your little toddler jumps up from playing their toys, their face brightens up, and they come run into the door to greet you? I mean, that is just the absolute highlight of the day. I miss those days. I, it, I mean, I could have been having a really bad day, and that moment of your toddler just running, going, Daddy! Like, it just changes everything. Or if you're having a great day, man, it just escalates the day and makes it even that much better. But why do we love having whether our dog, who actually will greet you, or your toddler come running? Because all of us, each of us, want to be loved. We want to know that we matter, that we're loved not for what we do, but simply for who we are. I I don't care if you're young or old, rich or poor, left-handed or right-handed, Republican or Democrat. You want to be loved. This is why I think so many people are drawn to God through the gospel. The gospel gives us some bad news. We are far more sinful than we probably want to admit. And yet it contains amazing news. We are far more loved than we could ever imagine. That no matter what has happened in your past, no matter what your current circumstances are, no matter who has hurt you or who you have hurt, God loves you, and he loves you way more than any puppy or toddler running in joy to greet you. And yet, if we're honest, we have days, even seasons, where we doubt that love of God. There there are moments when we don't feel it. This truth does not feel like truth. Like when when the financial issues continue, or, or God just isn't bringing the healing you keep praying for. You, you start to doubt his love. Or, or, or when the, the, you know, the relational needs you have aren't being met. Or, or the, the past is still like clinging to your present. You, you begin to doubt the goodness of God. Or, or when the addiction or the depression 
or the anger just seems more real, feels stronger than this love that pastors like me preach about. You begin to doubt God's power, and sometimes we even begin to doubt his existence. That's why we're going to push pause in our study in the book of Acts. If you're part of the Riverwood family, you know that since March, we've been studying the book of Acts. We took one little break. We're going to take another break. Because as we're studying the book of Acts, we're seeing the early church grow like crazy. We're seeing the gospel go on the move. We just ended at the first part of chapter 8, and we're now seeing the the disciples scatter and how this gospel is just going to spread through Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But if you're wrestling with this truth of God's love, you're having doubts, then Acts is just going to feel like some story that's completely irrelevant to your life. So we need to hit pause And just be reminded of God's love for us. And to do that, we're going to take four weeks here, the four Sundays of July, to study the book of Ruth. So as we get ready to open up to Ruth, let me pray. Heavenly Father, I I do pray for us. Um, Here we are on 4th of July weekend. Uh, Some of us, we've got plans, uh, uh, looking for ways to to relax, to enjoy the outdoors. and, And our mind is filled with all of these activities And yet, Father, some of us, what we need right now is to be reminded that you are with us, you are for us, and you love us. And you do not love us the way the world identifies love. Your love is unconditional, is completely committed, is absolutely life-changing. Father, some of us, we need to hear this, and it's going to be for the first time. Some of us, we've heard this before, but today is the day that we're going to believe Some of us have once known this, and yet we have temporarily forgotten it. Some of us, we've heard this so much, we've almost become a little calloused and apathetic to this powerful truth. So Father, I pray that you would take this beautiful, simple story from the book of Ruth to show us your incredible love for us, and that that would fill us with joy. It would fill us with excitement. It would fill us with hope that what we're going through now is not the end of the story, that you are not done. So Father, I pray that you would work through today's sermon for your glory, but also for our joy. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, if you brought a Bible, I invite you to open it up to the book of Ruth. It's this tiny little four-chapter book in the Old Testament. If you need a little bit of guidance on where to go, you can use the cheat sheet that's up there on the screen. Uh, Or if you've got a phone, feel free to use that or the table of contents uh, in the beginning. Uh, Because there are four chapters in Ruth, we're just going to do one chapter each Sunday for the month of July. So that means today we get to do chapter one. However, before you start studying a book of the Bible, it's good to kind of ask some basic questions. The who, what, why, when, where type of of questions. Now, unfortunately with Ruth, there's a few gaps in trying to answer these context questions. For instance, we don't know who wrote this book. Now, some people make the mistake of thinking Ruth wrote it because, I mean, there's other books of the Bible where the name of the author is the name of the book, but that's not the case here. Most likely, Ruth was uneducated, and this is not a knock against her. It was just the the nature of their culture. As you'll discover through this letter, she's an absolutely remarkable woman. But uh, she, she would not have been educated, probably couldn't read, probably couldn't write, and so she did not pin this herself. Now, the Jewish Talmud, which is kind of like a a, a commentary on the Hebrew scriptures, they claim that Samuel wrote the book of Ruth. And and I guess that's possible. 
Uh, some of you are familiar with Samuel's name. Uh, there are two books in, in uh, our Old Testament that bear his name, First and Second Samuel. However, he did not write First and Second Samuel, probably because he dies about three quarters of the way through First Samuel. So it's a little hard to write the rest of it when you're dead. Uh, but hey, with God's anything's possible. Um, so he did not write that, but he possibly wrote Ruth. But we don't know because he didn't give us any context clues. There, there's nothing in there that makes us realize, oh, I think it is him. We don't even know when this letter got written. I mean, not letter, this story got written. Um, that's another gap that we have. All we know is, is a rough approximation. If your Bible is open there to, to Ruth, look there at the very first uh, phrase of verse one. It just simply says, in the days when the judges ruled. If you are not familiar with uh, biblical Jewish history, uh, the Jewish people spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt when God finally sent them a man named Moses to help lead them out. They then were in the wilderness for like 40 years, and then when Moses passed, God used a man by the name of Joshua to take them across the Jordan River into what God had said was the promised land where Israel now is. And so they, they went there and they conquered the people and began to establish themselves. Well, then when Joshua passed, they didn't just have one leader rise to the top. They began to have these judges. Now, when I hear the word judge, I tend to think of someone like in a black robe, sitting on a chair on, a, you know, some sort of bench. They're up high and they're overruling a court listening to a case. Their judges were, were different. Yeah, they, they helped to rule and make decisions, but they acted more like mayors and governors than like an American judge. They, they also were not kings because when they died, their children didn't automatically assume the throne or the bench. It was just kind of whoever seemed to be the wisest, who, who just seemed to be the natural leader. These were these judges that God used. Now, this period of judges lasted about 300 years. And Ruth, because this occurred during that time, her story was originally part of the book of Judges. It was the very end. But then later, the Hebrew scriptures changed their, the structure, and they took that little portion out and put it with what they called the writings. I personally am glad that the book of Ruth got separated from the book of Judges. I, in my own personal Bible reading, I just happened to finish Judges like two, three weeks ago. It is a crazy book. Right, now, it's got some famous stories in there, like some of you are familiar with the stories of Samson, the strong man. But there are some other stories in there that if they were to make them into a movie, I'm not even sure an R rating would be strong enough. Like, they're, they're like eye-opening, shocking, I cannot believe this is in the Bible type of stuff. Right? Definitely not on any t-shirts or mugs. No one's going to tell these stories. So, so the tone of Ruth is completely different than Judges. And so I'm kind of glad that her book, her story got separated and she gets her own little section because it is a beautiful and powerful story. However, we don't know when within that period of the judges this took place. Now, I, I think a good case could be made that it occurred early in, in, in the period of the judges because one of the main characters we're going to meet, next week we're going to get to meet a guy by the name of Boaz. We will learn that Boaz is the son of Rahab. Some of you are familiar with that name. Rahab was a prostitute living in the city of Jericho. As Israel crossed over the Jordan River, some spies went in to, to seek things out, and she ended up helping these spies out. And so God protected her when the Israelites defeated Jericho, and she ends up becoming a proselyte. She joins with the Jewish people. She marries a Jewish man, and they have a son named Boaz. 
However, an argument could also be made that maybe Ruth was written a little later, where uh, these events took place later within the, the period of the judges, because at the very end of Ruth, there's a short little genealogy. And you see how Ruth and Boaz, how they end up having a kid who has a kid who has David, King David. And that ends the, the, the period of the judges. And so maybe, maybe this happened a, a little later. We, we don't specifically know. But honestly, I, I'm okay with not knowing exactly when it took place because it doesn't take away from the power and beauty of this story. We know a little bit of the who and the, the what of the story. Who are three main characters? Boaz, Naomi, and Ruth. Today, we're going to get to meet Naomi. The word Naomi means pleasant, but that's rather ironic because here in the very beginning, her life is anything but pleasant. And shortly after meeting Naomi, we're going to get to meet Ruth. So if your Bible is open there, let's begin because these two who's are going to help us to begin to understand the what of the book. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband." When I started studying this a couple weeks ago, I noticed quite a few of the, the commentaries, even a few of the um, like pastors. I listened to a couple of sermons. They made a really big deal about Elimelech's name. The, the name Elimelech in Hebrew means, my God is king. And the argument was, well, if he had just lived up to his name, he would have never left Israel, and then none of these things would have happened. So they like kind of held this against him. And I kind of felt that was unfair because look at the context of the story right there in verse one. It says that there was a famine in the land, which is rather ironic. They're from Bethlehem. Yes, it's that Bethlehem, the one that you sing about at Christmas, the, the, the birthplace of David and Jesus. They're from Bethlehem. The word Bethlehem means house of bread, but apparently the house is empty. And so I'm thinking like, well, man, if we had no food, I need to feed my wife and my kids. And if you hear there's food over in Moab, all right, let's go to Moab so that we can survive. And so I, I kind of felt these commentaries, these pastors were being a little unfair to this dude. But then the more I began to study, the more I realized that there were context clues that my modern American eyes were missing, but that the early readers would have immediately seen and realized what Elimelech did was wrong and it was actually sin. The first is that he leaves Israel, or Judah, to go to Moab. If you go back and read in the book of Judges, you'll see that Moab isn't just an enemy of Israel. Like, they are bullies. There, there's a story of Moab coming in, and basically they harvest everything. They steal all the crops before the Israelites can go out and get it. So, so they just have no food. Maybe that's what's contributing to this famine. They, they would even come in and just destroy fields, not even trying to get for themselves. They were just bullies. So for 
uh, uh, Elimelech to leave his people and go and join the bullies? I mean, this is like a deep, deep betrayal. I mean, this is like a worse betrayal than like a, a Denver Bronco fan suddenly switching to become a Kansas City Chiefs fan because they've won more Super Bowls lately. No, we're, we're talking like you leave your gang to join your rival gang because you like their color a little better. Or you leave your spouse simply because she's prettier or he's richer. This is a betrayal of the deepest level. Another context clue that makes us realize that what Elimelech did was wrong. He basically just disappears from the story after this. Now you're thinking, well, of course he does, Aaron. He died. But as you read through it, this is such a patriarchal society that Naomi, from here on out, should have been known as Naomi, the widow of Elimelech. But she's not. She's just basically known as Naomi. There's only a couple more times where Elimelech's name shows up, and it's more in relation to his property and land, but not so much his role as a husband and father. In fact, Naomi, a couple of times when she's identified, she's called the mother-in-law of Ruth. She's not even, you know, the, the widow of Elimelech. And did you hear it there in verse 3? It even says that, Naomi, that Elimelech, the husband of Naomi. So instead of it being Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, it suddenly becomes Naomi is on top. Elimelech is now noticed as her husband. It's flipped and switched. He's basically disappearing from the story because what he did was wrong. He doesn't matter as much now. Also, that leads into the third context clue, and that is his early demise right here in the very beginning of the story would have been seen by the early readers as punishment. This would have been God's discipline. If Elimelech, whose name means God is king, had just sought to trust God to remain in the house of bread, he probably would have been okay. But instead, he leaves Israel thinking he's fleeing from death, trying to go and find life in Moab. And instead, he gets death. And as we're going to see in a moment, he misses out on the life that returns to Bethlehem. Oh, by the way, did you know Bethlehem, meaning house of bread? Jesus is called the bread of life. The bread of life comes from the house of bread. There's your Bible trivia for the day. So basically, Naomi finds herself without a husband. So now she's being cared for by these two boys. These two boys marry, but then these two boys themselves die. The underlying tone here is that they follow in the footsteps of their dad. You see, their dad wasn't just this hardworking, blue-collar, God-fearing man who's seeking to protect his wife and his kids. No, the underlying current is that he was a weak man. He was just like the people of judges. Remember, the book right before this, it says all taken during the period of the judges. The, so the book just before Ruth ends like this. This is Judges 21, 25. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's what Elimelech did. It just seemed right to leave my people and in a sense, leave my God to go get food for my family for myself. And he suddenly disappears from the story. His two sons probably began following in his footsteps. They'd watched their dad. They'd observed what he'd done. They saw his heart, and so they just probably did whatever seemed right in their eyes. And so God allows them to die as well. Dads, your kids are watching you. 
They're, they're observing. They're absorbing. How are you living? Not trying to put a guilt trip on you. Just trying to acknowledge this is kind of how it goes. And so will you seek after God? It doesn't mean automatically your children are going to want to put their faith in Jesus. But if you live hypocritically, you're making it that much more difficult for your kids to believe that the gospel is true. But if you seek to live after Christ, they'll notice, they'll, they'll take notes, they'll absorb, and this starts to become a part of their life. Elimelech was not the guy that initially I thought he was. He was a weak man who was only doing what was right in his own eyes. His boys probably followed suit, and that is why we find all of the guys die. Now, Elimelech's decision to move his family from Bethlehem into Moab created grave consequences for Naomi. Some of you, you know what this is like. Someone in your life has made a decision, and you're the one who has faced the consequences for it. It doesn't feel fair, but this is exactly what happens to Naomi. She now finds herself widowed and now without her two sons. The, the, these ancient cultures were incredibly patriarchal, meaning no man, no income, no food, no, no protection. And, and throw on top of it, she's an Israelite. She's a foreigner. Yeah, she's lived there for 10 years, but do not be uh, confused. They're not going to just accept her. This is a bunch of bullies. So she is now at grave risk of being manipulated, taken advantage of, potentially even raped. So this is what causes Naomi to realize, I, I need to, to leave. I probably should head back home. And that's what we see in verses 6 and 7. Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food, meaning back in Bethlehem. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. Now, if we were to continue reading, we would see Naomi stop, look at her two daughters-in-law, and basically say, girls, I love you. But just as I'm in danger by staying here in Moab, if you come with me into Israel, you're in danger. Because there are young women who are going to be these Moabites coming from this bully country, and they're going to come over. They're probably not going to be accepted. And so they're going to put themselves in grave danger. Plus, Naomi's like, I know you guys love me. I love you. But even if I was able to get married and have a kid today— like, are you willing to wait the 20 years or whatever for a son to grow up so that you could then marry him? Like, this just isn't going to work, ladies. And so she's like, all right, you, you got to just head home. Go back to your families and maybe your father who can protect you and provide for you can help you find another husband. And, and yes, by the way, the one woman's name is Orpah, not Oprah. Uh, Oprah Winfrey herself tells the story that her mom meant to name her Orpah, but somehow the, the P and the R got switched. And I think that actually worked out better because Oprah Winfrey sounds way better than Orpah Winfrey. I don't know that she would have been the success she was today without that mistake. But Orpah hears Naomi's words and thinks, there's wisdom here. She's, she's right. And so she's in, if, you, if you read it, you'll see that she's in tears, but she ends up leaving and heads home. 
However, Ruth looks at Naomi. In fact, my Bible says that she clung to her and basically said, nope. Actually, she says it way more beautifully than that. Look at verses 16 and 17. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Wow. What powerful, beautiful words. Sounds kind of like a, a marriage vow, doesn't it? In fact, I've heard some people use this as their wedding vows. But I realize we live in a day and an age where same-sex marriage is legal. And so some people might try to interpret out of this that maybe they were getting married. They, they, they were not. There, there's no romance here. I mean, first of all, same-sex marriage back in those days, that would have resulted in death penalty. Right? So, so that wasn't happening. Also, the age difference between them and the, the prior relationship, mother-in-law to daughter-in-law, for them to get married would have been seen as incestuous. So there's no romance here. This is not a wedding vow. And yet it is still powerful and beautiful. Did you notice in this little vow that Ruth, each thing she says, amps it up? I mean, look at the first part. She says, for where you go, I will go. I mean, it's one thing to go with someone someplace. But then she says, where you lodge, where you stay, I will stay. You ever had a roommate? Right? Things, yeah, it's fine. Go hang out for the evening. But like living together, that, that, that gets harder. But she doesn't stop there. Your people shall be my people. She's basically giving up her identity, her culture, her family. She's even willing to give up her religion. Your God shall be my God. She's going to follow in the footsteps of Rahab, become a proselyte, join with Israelites, even though the Israelites may not accept her because she's a Moabite. So even though she is saying, hey, I'm going to attach myself here, they might not accept her. This might come at tremendous cost. And yet, Ruth is so committed to Naomi. She's basically saying, you're no longer just my mother-in-law. I'm going to love you as though you are my mom. Even to the point that when you die and I die, I want my bones buried with you because we are family. Ruth is basically saying, I am committed to, to you. Can you imagine what those words probably felt like to Naomi in that moment? Th think about it. Just in the little bit we've been reading in, in Naomi's story. She's gone through famine. They had to move. It was probably about 100 miles away. And so they had to walk it. It would have taken them probably about a week. They move there. They live among a foreign people. Her husband dies. She has only her boys, they marry, and then they both die. And so now she's completely widowed in a foreign land. <laughs> no wonder when she gets back to Bethlehem and some people recognize her, they're like, hey, it's, it's Naomi. Notice her response. Go down to verse 20. 
She said to them, do not call me Naomi, pleasant. Call me Mara. The Hebrew word for Mara is bitter, means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And when I read those words, I realize this is a woman who hasn't just lost her husband, her sons. This is a woman who's lost her faith. She doesn't feel like God is for her. She doesn't feel like God is with her. She doesn't feel like God loves her. She feels like God is punishing her. So can you imagine how powerful Ruth's poem would have been to hear no matter what has happened in your past, no matter what awaits you in your future, no matter what your current circumstance, Naomi, I am committed to you. I can only imagine the hope that that would have instilled in Naomi. Yes, she is a hurting, depressed, bitter woman, but she hasn't lost everything. She's at least got Ruth, who's saying, I will care for you and protect you as best I can for the remainder of our lives. That is love. True love is committed. Problem is, all of us are regularly hearing through our music, seeing in our movies, experiencing in our conversations at work and at school, that love is a feeling. Love is temporary. Love is for a season. Because how often have you heard someone say, well, you know, they're, they're breaking up or they're getting divorced, you know, because, well, they're just kind of headed different directions, you know. They just outgrew each other. You know, it, it happens. Now, the only kind of committed love that we talk about in our culture is the commitment to self. You got to be true to yourself. That's the committed love of our day and age. And yet, in our story, we've seen someone committed to self. We've seen a couple of them. Elimelech. He leaves Bethlehem, the house of bread, to go to Moab because this is what seemed right in his eyes to take care of himself and his family. And we've seen Orpah do the same. And in some ways, I don't blame them. On the surface, it looks like that was the right thing to do. But sometimes what looks like the right thing to do is not the right thing to do because you're not putting your faith in God. Orpah is committed to herself so she heads home, hoping she might be able to find the husband. She might be able to have the kids. She might be able to have the Moabite dream. And her story ends. We, ne- we hear no more of her. But Ruth does the crazy thing, commits herself to this old widow, says, I will take care of you. Yes, I realize it means I might not ever get a husband, which means I might not ever be able to have kids, which might mean I will probably remain poor the rest of my life. I am running the risk of being abused and, and taken advantage of. And yet I'm committed to you. And that selfless, committed love is what allows Ruth to be in the canon of Scripture. And we know her story, and we don't know Orpah's. The fastest way to unhappiness is selfishness. If you want your story to disappear, then simply live your life for you. Follow our culture's discipling. Become a, a follower of yourself. And I can guarantee your story will fade and you will be forgotten. Yes, nice things will be said at your funeral. But that'll be it. If you want to have a life, though, that your story lives on, continues to make an impact, give your life away. Commit it to others. Give it all to them. 
you will leave a legacy and you will make an impact. But how do you do it? How do you live that kind of life when everything around us and even within us is basically saying, be committed to yourself? Where does that kind of selfless, committed love come from? It comes from God. 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. Not love is God. God is love. He is the very definition of love. Which means that the love and commitment we see from Ruth towards Naomi here does not surpass or outpace any kind of love that God has. Rather, it is merely a glimpse of the kind of love that God has for humanity. God is committed to you. And everything we heard in Ruth's poem, in Ruth's vow to Naomi, we've seen God show to you through Jesus. Now, yes, you will never hear Jesus say, your God will be my God, because he is God. But the rest of it, we, we see Jesus live it out. The fact that Jesus left his throne to take on human flesh was his way of saying, I will go where you go. I will stay where you stay. Your people are my people. And even though Ruth had to say, and where you die, I will die, Jesus is able to say, I will die for you so that you can come into the life I've always intended for you. Not even death is going to stop his commitment. That's why Paul in Romans chapter 8 says this, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is how committed God is to you. It does not matter what has happened in your past. It cannot stop the love of God. It does not matter what is happening in your current circumstance. That is not a gauge of God's love. And it does not matter what's going to happen in your future because you are secure in God's love. He is absolutely, radically, totally, and completely committed to you. And not because of anything you've done, simply because of who you are. His image is in you. He created you. And so therefore you matter to him. The question though is, will you be like Naomi and accept his committed love, believe it despite how you might be feeling, or will you be like Elimelech or Orpa, and just go and do whatever seems right in your own eyes. Now, before you think I'm trying to manipulate you emotionally, put a guilt trip on you, I've got good news. That even if you have had an Elimelech moment, even if you've been like Orpa, done what just seems right in the eyes of the world, in your own eyes, God is still committed to you. Remember, Naomi went with her husband to Moab. She lived there with her sons. She was fully on board. She even says, I left full. I thought they left because there was a famine. But no, actually my life was okay because I had a husband. I had children. And we went there just to have the good life. They left God. She's saying, now he's bringing me back empty. 
And yet, as we continue to read the story, we're going to discover it wasn't just Ruth who was committed to, to Naomi. It's God himself who is leading and guiding this whole entire story. So even if you've had the Orpah moments, the Elimelech days, God is still for you. He is still with you. He is absolutely, completely committed to you. So come. Come to Jesus. Come to God. Just bask in his forgiveness. Live in his presence. Let, let his love be the definition that surrounds you. If you've never put your faith in Christ, I just encourage you today to just pray a simple prayer to God. Saying, God, I realize that I've been like Orpah. I've been like Elimelech. I've lived for myself. And yet I now realize that you, Jesus, died on a cross so that those sins could be forgiven. And you welcome me with open arms into a relationship with you. Now, it's not a magic formula. There aren't magic words you need to say. It's your heart's posture. And also, we're going to see in the story, things don't immediately get better for them. So you giving your life to Jesus doesn't like fix everything. But it does give you a hope. It does give you a future. And it does give you this chance to realize just how loved you are. Because deep down, that is what you long for. Because it's what you were created for. So come to him. So Heavenly Father, I just pray right now, you would help us to come. We would come to you in our hearts. We'd, we'd come to you in our minds. We would basically kneel down before your throne of grace. And we would accept your love. Because you, Jesus, didn't wait for us to clean up our act and come to you. You came to us. That even while we were still sinners, you died for us. That even when we are faithless, you are faithful. That there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from your committed love. So Father, help us to come to, to be committed to you ourselves. Thank you that your forgiveness is so powerful. You are able to forgive even our Elimelech moments. That you don't hold those things against us. But God, I also just pray you'd, you'd work deep within us that we wouldn't delay, that we wouldn't run the risk of, of missing out. Because God, I believe you have something for us. You want to do something in us. You want to work through us. So Father, help us in these next holy moments to worship, to pray, to come. And it's in Jesus' precious name I pray.